please remain standing for the reading of our scripture lesson today. Very appropriate text coming on the occasion of Palm Sunday. This is Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he, that is Jesus, sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Good morning. I I bring you greetings from the little church plant west of Toulouse in the township of Tournefeuille. And this is a, a small little church that all of you have helped make possible through your prayers. And we have seen God answering so many prayers as we uh, recollected during our Sunday school time. But this morning, if, uh, if you have your Bibles with you, you might want to turn to uh, Matthew 21, those first 11 verses. And uh, this describes a, a history which uh, a lot of us are familiar with. This is something with, uh, which, uh, of course, people in France are not familiar with. As I shared earlier during Sunday school, less than 2% of the people in France are Bible-believing Christians, most of them have no clue as to what is inside the Bible. They know it's a book that exists, but they really don't know what's inside. They do know that there is a holiday, a Christian holiday. Actually, I can't even say most of them know this, but many of them know of of Palm Sunday. Uh, Generations ago in France, the tradition was that little children would take their their palms to church to have the priest, the Catholic priest, because that's all they had at the time, would, would bless the, the palm, and this somehow, when they take it home and stick it in their bedroom, was going to protect them, and that was what the children were told. Um, this is uh, not really the case, but this is just something that they were, were picked up on that, that culture at the time. But for most people in France today, if they have any consciousness of Palm Sunday whatsoever, it is that it is the Sunday before Easter. And that means, as all things do in France, it means that there's some food coming. And the food is going to be coming at Easter, and whereas Christmas is much more elaborate when it comes to food, and we'll talk a little bit about that later, but for for Easter, the, the big consideration is that there's going to be chocolate. So Palm Sunday means it's time to think about getting organized, going out to the supermarket, and buying lots and lots of chocolate because the little children... Uh, we're told, at least in days past, and some of them still, that there are church bells that fly over all of France on Easter morning, and they drop 
chocolate all over your garden outside. Um, so I, it, it's French, okay? It's, it's, this is what they're told. And so they get all excited about flying church bells. I've never known one of those to be flying, but if it was, I'd want to avoid it falling on me. It's, it sounds kind of dangerous to me, but at any rate, they're, they're, so for the Sunday itself of Palm Sunday, which is called Ramo, Ramo, there is, uh, and that literally refers to the uh, the olive branches and palm branches that were spread before Jesus. There is most of them don't even know what the word means. By the way, um, there is no real celebration whatsoever. But at the time of Jesus, at the time of Jesus, there was great celebration and there was a great deal going on and a lot of excitement going on. And so we'll just put this in the the context there. This is Jesus's last week before his crucifixion, and this was coming at the time of Passover. Passover was the, the biggest festival of the year for the Jews. The uh, Jewish historian uh, uh, Flavius uh, Josephus tells us that uh, something like half of the population of the Roman province of Judea would have been gathered uh, in Jerusalem for this big event. And that's, he says uh, something like three million people, which if you think about Jerusalem at the time, it was, uh, the population was nowhere near that size. So there's this huge population, 3 million is much bigger than Peoria. The size of the city of Jerusalem, the physical size, was a whole lot smaller than uh, the city of Peoria. So crowded, very, very crowded. Lots of crowded people there. Um, Passover, of course, commemorates for the Jewish people the deliverance of God's people from slavery in Egypt. The delivery from captivity this is kind of interesting. This is a coming at a time that Judea is run by and occupied by the Romans. So this is a country under occupation, something that by God's grace has not occurred in the United States, but has occurred in France. Most French people, when they hear about an army of occupation, they're thinking about 1940 to 1945 during the period when France was indeed occupied. So they, this, when they hear about an army of occupation, it, it rings a bell with them. But for the people back then, uh, there would have been different reactions to what was going on. And if you were one of the Romans, one of the Roman officials there, you would have been probably a little bit nervous, this idea of a holiday which celebrates God's delivering his people from captivity. That's bound to make you a little bit nervous. There's these huge crowds of the subjugated Jews and they're, they're celebrating deliverance. And they're all thinking about deliverance. And goodness, anything might happen. It's got to make you a little bit nervous if you're one of the Romans. But we're not focusing on them. The crowds themselves are going to include some of the Jewish zealots. Some of the zealots who are indeed looking for liberation specifically from Rome. That's what this holiday is all about for them. Um, and that there's some that are going to be focused on tradition. There's always some people that are very big on traditions. And they would have been focused on all of the preparations for the Passover. And, and then there's a, a lot of people, maybe even a majority of them, that really like celebrating. And you don't need to have a specific... They just really like a festival. They like a celebration. So they're getting ex excited about that because there are people that just get excited celebrating holidays. So you've got these different, varied emotional states of all these people. But Jesus, Jesus, he knew more about what was happening than the crowds did. Jesus knew everything that was going to be going on. So he knew everything that was happening. Um, he knew more than the crowds. He knew more than the Jewish leaders. 
who were supposed to be experts on the Passover. Jesus knew more about this, and he knew certainly knew more than the Roman leaders, uh, who really didn't have a clue. <laughs> they were just poor, puzzled fellows, and even more than his own disciples. Jesus knows what's going on here. The people gathered in Jerusalem were very joyful over the prospect of a very present deliverance. Uh, some of them were thinking it's a deliverance from the Romans. And they were shouting Hosanna in their tongue. Hosanna means uh, save. It means uh, save please. It's very polite. Save please or deliver us. And uh, the question is there, of course. Is Jesus going to be this messianic king that's going to deliver his people? We now know that the answer to that question was yes, he is. He is the messianic king who's going to deliver his people. Maybe not in the sense, in fact, certainly not in the sense that the zealots had in mind or were looking for something more of a uh, drive out the Romans. Um, he was not that kind of a messiah. But uh, nevertheless, he certainly was the messiah, the messiah that God's people have been waiting for. So there's three acting parties here. He's certainly Jesus, he's active. There is, uh, and uh, then there's the disciples, and then there's the, those crowds, which are kind of composed of different groups. So we'll look first at Jesus. Jesus, what he did was he ordered the disciples to borrow a donkey and the colt with the donkey and bring it to him. And then he told the disciples what to say. When you go to get that donkey, here's what you say, and, and here's who you say it to. And then he rode the donkey into Jerusalem. Yeah. The obvious question is, why did he do this? Why did he do this? Verse 5 tells us that he did this to fulfill a prophecy in Zechariah, verse 9 of chapter 9, the Messiah King has come. Your King is coming to you mounted on a donkey. It's pretty unambiguous. And it's very obvious when Jesus comes riding in on a donkey what he's about. Jesus knew that his time had finally come. And he knew where the donkey would be. He knew that it had not been sat upon, certainly the, uh, the colt, the foal of the donkey, had not been sat upon. He knew that the words that he gave his disciples would cause the owner to comply with his wishes. He knew this ahead of time. He knew that his disciples were going to obey him. That's an amazing foreknowledge going on here with Jesus. Just amazing foreknowledge. So Jesus rode into Jerusalem, and he's not rejecting or avoiding the cries of Hosanna to the son of David. He's not uh, avoiding that. Uh, David, of course, is the glorious warrior king of God's people. He's proclaimed as the Messiah, Savior King, as, as he intended. Now, this is interesting because so many instances before in the New Testament, we find that, that Jesus, especially after performing a miracle or something, he tells the people, you know, okay, be silent. Don't tell anybody what's going on here. Don't tell anybody what I just did. And here it's the opposite. It's the opposite here. His time has come. So when the people are proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah, he's, he's okay with it. He's not telling anybody to be silent this time. He wants this to be proclaimed. He wants this. He's making a point. If you read this prophecy about the donkey, about the king, the Messiah king coming, riding humbly on the donkey, that's about me. Jesus is being very, very obvious here. That whole prophecy is about me. He's going to be the uh, Messiah king. Now, if you think about this objectively, somebody in that crowd, or especially somebody who who's know, knows a fair amount about the prophecies in the Old Testament, you're thinking to yourself, well, you know, somebody's got to be extremely arrogant 
to act like Jesus. You've got to be extremely arrogant to do what Jesus did, knowing this prophecy to come riding into Jerusalem at the time when everybody's waiting for the deliverer or, or talking about this, and to come riding in on a donkey, humbly. Oh my goodness, what kind of arrogance is this? But it's not arrogance because Jesus was the Messiah. He was exactly what the prophecy was, was previewing. That's, that's exactly what the prophecy foretold. And we turn to the disciples. What's going on with them? They obeyed Jesus. They went to the place where he told them to do. It's kind of an unusual request. You know, picture yourself as one of the disciples. I want you to go into the town and you, you turn here and there's the donkey there. Okay, There's going to be a donkey and you're going to get the donkey and the colt of the donkey. And if anybody asks you, because somebody's going to ask you probably, if anybody asks you, here's what you're going to say. And he tells them specifically what to do. And... Um, they go ahead and do it. They obey. They don't even balk. They don't even balk. A baseball term we use in the language, but it's, uh, yeah, they, they don't hesitate to do this. They go ahead and they do this. They found the donkey just as Jesus said. They said the words that Jesus told them to say, and the owner let them take the donkey just like Jesus said. And they accompanied Jesus into the city. Why did they do this? Why did they do these things? Well, they've been with Jesus a long time by now. It's, it's years here. It's almost three years. And they've been with Jesus during this time, and they've seen exhibitions of Jesus' authority. There's so many examples we could turn to. They've seen Jesus demonstrating His authority through miracles, through His Word, through His knowledge of Scripture. And if there's one thing they know, even when some of these things occurred and they weren't sure what Jesus was up to, there's one thing they do know. Jesus knows what He's doing. Jesus knows what he's doing. They've got confidence in Jesus. Yeah, we're going to go do this. We're not sure why we're doing this, but we do these things because Jesus knows what he's doing. They've got confidence in him. And now we turn at last to the third actors, if you will, in this whole history, the crowds, all the others. Verse 8 tells us that most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road and others were cutting down branches from the trees and they were spreading them on the road. Verse 9, the crowds were going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. That was most of the crowd. That's what most of the crowd are doing. And those are the words that are used in verse 8, most of the crowd. Um, what about the rest of the crowd? You've got to wonder about them. What about the rest of them? Well, verse 10 and 11 tells us about the rest of the, the people there. All of the city is stirred saying, Who is this? Who is this? What's going on? And the crowds are saying this in response. The crowds that are with Jesus say, This is Jesus the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Why are the crowds doing this? Why are they saying all these things? They're acclaiming Jesus as the Messiah King, as the realization of the prophecy. They're proclaiming this. Cloaks in the road, kind of unusual. I've never seen anybody do this. Cloaks in the road and then branches down on the road. That's so that no one, the honored one, will not be touching the dust of the road. And even, even the donkey's not going to touch, touch that, that dust on the road. So the, uh, the cloaks and the, the branches and the palms will protect them from that. This was done to honor royalty. It was not done, I wasn't around at the time, I don't know who the most famous singer or actor was, but it's not even done for the big stars. It's not done for the stars. This is something reserved for, for royalty. Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna to the son of David. 
So here is that, that reference to a, a Davidic uh, Messiah, the Davidic heir to the throne of God's people. And although Jesus arrives without rich robes and on a donkey, well, that meets the prophecy. If he had come on a white horse, which is what, if you were a victorious general back then, this is what you did. You entered the city on a white horse. You did not enter it on a donkey. Why do you enter it on a donkey? Because that is the prophecy. He's going to enter humbly on a donkey. And the people knew this. So this is why they're going crazy. This is why the people are announcing, you know, here's the Messiah, here, here, he's finally come. That's why they're so happy and that's why they're, they're claiming this. Because he's not on a horse, he's on a donkey. That's why they're so happy. For those of you who are familiar with the uh, history of the First World War, when um, the British defeated the Ottomans and entered the city of Jerusalem, the commander of the British armies was a guy named Allenby. General Allenby got off of his horse when he entered Jerusalem. He said, I'm not going to enter on a horse where my Savior entered on a donkey. Pretty impressive. <laughs> Pretty impressive. But the prophecy was there. That's how Jesus entered. We see Jesus proclaimed as the king here. The disciples accept his authority. Jesus demonstrates foreknowledge about fulfilling the prophecy. The king is coming and Jesus has no problem being proclaimed as the king. He wants this to happen. The crowds proclaim that Jesus is the prophet from Nazareth, the Messiah, the king. If you're there at the time, this has to be something that's really exciting. This is just unbelievable. This, this major historical event is happening. But let's just focus on one aspect of this thing here. Jesus is being proclaimed as the king. What does that mean here? What does that mean? What is the king here? Uh, for some of the people right there, pro proclaiming a king is, hey, it's another party time. It's like when you have a coronation of a king in, in the United Kingdom or the Netherlands or Denmark or one of these places where they still have kings. It's, there, there's lots of big parties and big celebrations because there are lots of people that, that, love, uh, that love celebrations. Um, to, to some people... Um, they're saying uh, in the crowds, they're saying, well, what is all this disruption about? We've already mentioned the Jewish officials and the, uh, the Roman officials. And there's probably also a number of business people there as well. Those people in those categories, the Roman officials, the Jewish officials, and, the, and a lot of the business people, they probably, they just want life to get back to normal so they can get back to their normal go going to business. They're, they're, they're not ex um, excited about this unexpected king this is something that's a little disturbing. It's going to change the status quo. And these are people that are pretty content with the status quo. They don't want things changing a whole lot, so they're a little nervous here. To some, the Messiah has come, and he's going to deliver us to the Romans. We've already mentioned this. Um, but the thinking here is that the Messiah King, think about people today. The Messiah King, what is he about? The King is about... Delivering us from the Romans, no, in today's parlance, is giving me what I'm after, giving me what I want. And how many people there are who look at God this way? Yes, they recognize God as a king of sorts, but on the other hand, he's, he's God. He's able to, to deliver things that, that I'm after, things that I want. And so this is this, this tendency, as the saying goes, December's the month when everybody sees Santa Claus as God, and the other 11 months is when everybody thinks that God is Santa Claus. And unfortunately, that's the case. So often, the people look at God, their king, as one who is basically charged with giving them what they want. And yet, that's not what he's about. That's not what he's about. He's about so much more than that. Why all this fuss over a king? 
Oh, yeah, it's, it's a big deal when the king arrives, but if, um, if you remember, several months ago, I think it was last fall, Queen Elizabeth died. Queen Elizabeth, the, the queen of the United Kingdom, died. And uh, when she died, then her son Charles became the king. Um, and that's certainly an important event for the British people, but for most of the rest of the world, it's not exactly a, a life-changing event. It's, you know, the, the queen is gone and now there's a king. It doesn't change my life much and it probably didn't change your lives much and probably won't. Um, but uh, that's because monarchs in today's Western culture, they don't really have the powers of a sovereign king. Use that word sovereign. A sovereign king is different from the, the very limited kings we have now. And in the United Kingdom, the king has been limited ever since uh, 1215 when you had the Magna Carta. But uh, in France, the king had a lot of power until he lost his head, quite literally. Um, so that was something that uh, when, when we think of king's powers in, in, in France, we do think in terms of a, a sovereign king who has, has ultimate power. But for nearly everybody in Jerusalem, the arrival of a king means, means something really big. Because at the time of Jesus' entry, um, there was a king, King Herod, uh, who, had, who had some power. He was not a sovereign king, though. Even at that time, King Herod's not a sovereign king. He's got limited power because he's, he's serving at the pleasure of the Romans. He's really a puppet king when you think about it. Could he direct the foreign policies of Judea? No, that was all under the hands of the Romans. Um, he could start certain projects and things if the Romans approved it, but that was it. See, he was a very limited king. Limited authority, not a sovereign king. Verse 5, though, says, Behold, your king is coming. King in verse 5, uh, translated from the, uh, the Greek, I'm going to butcher this, uh, Basilius, or Basilius, as we would say in French, um, is meaning... Uh, a sovereign king, like an emperor. Think of the emperor Napoleon. Who was higher? Nobody. Nobody. In fact, when Napoleon was crowned, the Pope came up to Napoleon holding the crown, and as he's about to crown Napoleon, Napoleon grabbed the crown and put it on his own head. Nobody's above me. That, that's his mentality. Not even God was above Napoleon, according to Napoleon. Pretty arrogant, but Napoleon was an arrogant little fellow. Um... But a sovereign king is a king with nobody over him. And that's the point here. As a sovereign king, a truly sovereign king, has authority over his people, but there's no authority over him whatsoever. Jesus. Jesus had authority. Jesus had authority. Now, for, uh, for some in Jerusalem, Jesus' authority uh, had to be opposed at any level. These were people, especially the Jewish officials, they were fearful that he was going to upset their apple cart, that uh, they would not be able to enjoy the privileges that they had before and the power, the political power that they had before, the religious powers that they had before. They were concerned about that. So Jesus, if he's going to be coming as a king, we've got to oppose him. That's what they were thinking. And uh, there were many in the crowds who uh, thought that his authority was to be embraced. We're going to embrace this authority of King Jesus conditionally. Conditionally. This isn't... Not total sovereign power because the condition that they're insisting on is that he get rid of the Romans. If he doesn't get rid of the Romans, well, sorry, this isn't quite what we're looking for in a king. And so we are not going to recognize that authority. That's how many people in the crowd were reacting. There's a, they were very excited about a king, but on condition. Well, what about Jesus' disciples, though? We've talked about them. 
They're not quite like the others, are they? They've already submitted to his authority. Why are they submitting to his authority? Well, for one thing, they knew him. They knew Jesus. Unlike 98% of the French population, they knew Jesus. They had learned from his words and his deeds. They trusted him. They trusted Jesus. He was righteous. He knew what he was doing. He knew what he was doing. Now, I'm not saying they never had their moments of doubt. We all know they did. Um, Thomas is not the only one. <laughs> there were others who had their moments of doubt. Um, and there would be those moments. But, but Jesus would always bring them back to himself. He was the good shepherd. He always brought them back to himself. And so they, uh, they trusted him. So the question that, that we ask ourselves, the question that we could ask anybody really is, is Jesus your king? Is Jesus your king? And if so, what does that mean? The people have declared Jesus. There are people today who will declare Jesus as their Lord and Savior, not unlike people that Sunday in Jerusalem. Jesus the deliverer of the king. And what does it mean to be delivered? If we look at uh, Leviticus 20, 26.12, it's a really cool verse, I love this. I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. God created us to have a relationship with him. God created us to have a relationship with him. Listen to the words here. They're, they're relationship words. I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. He's going to walk among his people and be their God. That's a relationship. But we humans, we humans, we cut that relationship with God by our acts, our thoughts, our feelings, our words, anything that's contrary to the will of God. In France, when I'm explaining the gospel to people, I, I can't really use the word sin, Peche in French. I can't use that because so many of them have a misunderstanding of what it means. So instead I just use the phrase, anything that's contrary to the will of God. Now they understand that. That's not ambiguous for them. So you can use that. And anything, anything that we do or fail to do, or think, or feel, or say, that's contrary to the will of God, yeah, that, that's, that is sin. And sin, in effect, is rejection, of God's rule, it is insulting to God, and, and that is why God's word tells us that we deserve eternal separation from God for our sins, for that, uh, for our rejection of his will. He didn't reject us, we rejected him. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is kind of a universal human trait. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. What we earn, what we deserve for our sins is death, spiritual death, eternal separation from the love of God. Happily, Romans 6.23 doesn't stop there. <laughs> the wages of sin is death, but the gracious or unmerited gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Eternal life in Christ Jesus. This is the gracious gift of God. Only Jesus can deliver us from what we deserve because of our sins. He's the deliverer in this sense. He's a spiritual deliverer. Has nothing to do with getting rid of the Romans. Has everything to do with being free from the consequences of our sin. He's the deliverer. But the verse Romans 6.23 does not just simply end with um, the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. It's the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our Lord. 
that's a curious phrase. And so we, we stop and think, what does the word Lord mean? In Greek, it's kyrio, uh, master or Lord. But our understanding of that is not like, even people in the Middle Ages, they knew what the Lord was. The Lord was the Lord of the manor, the guy who could really have, have rule over their lives. Details of their lives were controlled by some other force that was a Lord. The, the Greek word kyrio comes from kuros, which means supreme in authority. Supreme in authority, like a sovereign king. A sovereign king. Now, we can think of Lord uh, today, um, I don't know if you're familiar, does anybody know who Sebastian Coe was? <laughs> or is? Yeah, there we go, okay. Sebastian Coe was a British distance runner who uh, won the uh, 1500 meter in the Olympics in 1980 and 84. Two Olympics in a row, he won the gold medal, and uh, he also helped, broke the world record in the mile. Huge, huge hero in Britain. He became a lord because of running. He becomes a lord. Curious, but they do that. So he becomes a lord. And what authority did he have over anybody? None. None. He, he, they call him Lord Co. and no authority. No authority at all, except well, now he's the uh, head of the World Athletics Organization. But at any rate, uh, he doesn't have authority over our daily lives. Certainly nobody here is under the authority of Lord Co. But we read that this word in Greek is intended to mean supreme authority. So it's, it's an authority that is much higher than, than some lord who simply has a title. It's basically an honorary title. It's not something like that. Jesus Christ is our Lord. He's the supreme authority over us. There's none higher. He's a sovereign king. There's that word again, sovereign. He's a sovereign king. He reconciled us with God by his death on the cross. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died for us and he rose from the dead to prepare an eternal dwelling place for us. And John 5.11 says, God has given us eternal life in his Son. The one who has the Son has the life. The one who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. When we declare Jesus is our Lord, we're declaring that he is the sovereign king. He is the sovereign king. Yes, he is the Messiah, the Savior who gives us eternal life, but he's also our Lord, the sovereign king with supreme authority over us. Jesus' disciples, they acknowledge his authority. They acknowledge that and they knew him. As I mentioned, 98% of the free French people don't know Jesus. They don't know his words. They don't know his deeds. But... What about me? What do I learn from Jesus' words, his deeds? Where does that put me with respect to him? Is he my Lord? There's atheist professors, very learned men, atheist professors at prestigious universities who are professors of religious studies. They study the Bible. They, they know a lot about the Bible, and they do not believe in God. They're atheists. And these people are very, very bright. They're very intelligent. They're brilliant, in fact. So how can I learn from his words and deeds if these brilliant people don't? I mean, that's, that's you know, I, I can't stack up to those people. So what's the difference? The difference is God acting in your heart. If God, through his Holy Spirit, is acting in my heart, he is the one who causes me, enables me, to believe. He is the one who causes me, enables me to submit to Jesus Christ as my Lord, as my supreme authority. He does that. 
So I pray to him for that. Because I don't want to end up being like some university, atheistic university professor who simply reads things and it, it begins and ends there. It's just a book. It's like reading Greek mythology for them. The disciples trusted him and they loved him because he knew what he was doing. And if I understand what the Lord, my Lord, wants of me, what happens if it's not what I want? And this does happen. It happens to all of us, actually. See, yeah, Lord, thank you. I, I understand what you want. That's not quite what I want. And this certainly happened to the people back in Jesus' time. What they wanted of Jesus. Even his own disciples would make requests of him were not what he intended at all. Say, no, that's not what you're going to get. You're not going to get this. You're not going to get what you want. It's different. But we have to trust that Jesus, he knows what's best. He knows what he's doing. In Genesis 18.25, we read, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? He loves us. He loves us. It's another reason to trust him. Romans 8, 38, 39 reads, and a lot of you have memorized this, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that amazing? That's a promise. I don't know if many of you have read uh, J.I. Packer's book, uh, Knowing God. It's, it, it exists in French even. Isn't that great? <laughs> um, it's a great book. It is a terrific book. I highly recommend it. One of the things that just jumped off the page to me, brief little sentence, J.I. Packer writing, he knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. Just something to think about. Every time that you're, you're, you're stressed, any time that you're wondering about God, just think about that. And all through the Bible, you see, he always knows what he's doing. Palm Sunday, he goes and he asks his disciples to do something that sounds really strange, but he knows what he's doing. He's going to ride into Jerusalem. He's going to ride in on a donkey. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. He's heading towards the cross, his own crucifixion. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. Always. Always. We can trust him, therefore. And yet, we also have something that a lot of people don't have when you think in terms of your Lord or whoever's Lord they are serving, whatever Lord they're serving, and that is this is not just simply an almighty authority over us. Yes, He is the almighty authority. He is the sovereign Lord over us. But we have another reason to trust Him as our King beyond being simply His subjects. He's family. He's family. King Charles, the king of the UK, he's got siblings. He's got siblings. He's got Andrew, who's not always a perfect fellow. <laughs> he's got Edward. Who is this guy, Edward? Yeah, there's this Edward fellow. I mean, he's got siblings. Um, but we have Jesus Christ as our spiritual big brother in those terms, if I could use that kind of a term, um, because we're adopted children of God through the propitiation of Jesus Christ. And we don't have time for this. Propitiation is such a very important concept. It's, it's so important to understand what this is about. But it is through Jesus Christ only that we become adopted. 
that adoption is only possible through propitiation. Propitiation is everything Jesus does for us to get us into that position. So pray that we believe this with all of our heart and mind, that we trust Him more than our own thoughts and feelings. Most of us go through life making most of our major decisions based on emotions. I can't tell you how many times... I used to be a lawyer, you know, before I repented. But anyway, I, I, I was a lawyer and I can't... I was a trial lawyer. I worked for all these insurance companies. And I would end up in a trial and I would see juries swayed by emotions. So many people just did a basic decision. I'm like, my goodness, they're deciding it has nothing to do with the facts of the case. Yep, that's right. You know, you stick somebody who's hated in front of a jury, they're going to nail the guy every time. If you stick somebody who's really, really liked before a jury, skates through, no problem. Um, unbelievable, because people make decisions based on their emotions, based on even our own thinking, which is not the same as God's thinking. And this happened on Palm Sunday, we see this. There were zealots in that crowd, people who thought they were very faithful to God, and what they wanted out of Jesus was a conditional king. Drive out the Romans, and then we'll be yours. Don't drive out the Romans, you're not going to be ours. You're not our Lord. And that's the problem. Submission to any king is not easy. When things don't seem to make sense, how can we submit? Lord, I understand you're saying this, but it doesn't make any sense to me, so that, that makes it hard. Go into a village opposite you and find a donkey there. And by the way, you're going to say this to the guy that owns it. There's lots of things that don't make sense. But if it's coming from God... We can trust him because he knows what he's doing. Now, a good king in this world evokes cheers and praise from people. God saved the king. You hear that in, in England? Um, it was uh, amazing how these things happened. But, but what, did the, what did King Jesus evoke? He evoked hosannas. Please save. Please save, they were saying. Save. We can always count on him to save his people to save his people. So pray for faith and trust that our Lord, our King, would exercise authority over us because he is righteous and he loves us. We're his family. Our Lord is the only perfect King, unlike any other who ever lived. He is trustworthy, isn't he? Isn't he wonderful? Isn't he glorious? Isn't he worthy of our praises? And the answer, they're all rhetorical questions. The answer is always yes. The answer is always yes. And we, sh we can be grateful that He is our sovereign Lord and King. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. One generation will praise your works to another and will declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works I will meditate. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in His words, holy in all His works. Praise Jesus Christ, our King, now and forever. Amen.